the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney. And I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. In addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation and a master of the laws of intellectual property. Now, because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy. However, I also practice some related fields in my overall consumer and small business financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. And with these areas of law as my reference point, that is to say, as they relate to the familial, personal, community, and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the nearly past 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And as I grew up as a military brat and I will always be one, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our, our sometimes less than patriotic capital based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And I've shared with you in the past that I have these two great ladies, along with my dad, always on my shoulder, whispering in my ear, <laughs> telling me to do the right thing. Uh, and uh, these three people uh, meant so much to me when I was growing up. And they taught me all about economics and about finance and about God and about trying to do the right thing. And especially my grands, because they were able to survive the four great economic challenges of the last century. Uh, my dad for for the latter three, but he wasn't around during the Great Depression. But they were during the Great Depression, World War II's um, privations and the systemic racism and misogyny that continues through our society today. And because these women and my dad loved me and shared with me great stories 
of their grandparents, my grandmothers, uh, who loved them and raised them in the post-reconstruction Jim Crow South. It is out of my great love and respect for these women who were always with me, along with my dad in spirit, urging me on uh, that such as such when the situation is right. I am sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors and the disabled who find themselves the targets of and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of adult elder financial abuse that seems to be running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more probably than not these days, the lack thereof and your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect and or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your families or your businesses, financial health, wealth and money related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information that might be helpful to you as you begin your more detailed search for more detailed information that's specifically tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances because everybody's different and hopefully provides you with at least a general outline of some of the key issues that will help you in your search to find the qualified professional help I believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances or your assets or your debt. So, continuing last week's discussion that we broached on the subject of the debt ceiling, I want to put some facts on the table so we all can have a a similar set of facts because out there in the ether, people are saying things that aren't necessarily true. But we want to um, live by the truth here on this show anyway. So, our country was born in debt and as part of coming together to form a more perfect union under our Constitution, dealing with that debt was a critical part of our formation. Also, how we produce revenue and spend it once it's raised is spelled out in Article One of our Constitution. That's the same place that I refer to as the bankruptcy clause. Uh, a list of things that Congress can do. Number three, we have borrowing limits as a convenience to allow the executive branch some flexibility in paying our legal obligations that have already been undertaken and approved by Congress in previous sessions. And defaulting on our obligations will harm us as individuals. And it will also harm our standing as the major economic uh, engine in our world. So let's take a look at these facts in turn. One, our country was born in debt and part of the rationale for forming a more perfect union under our Constitution had all to do with dealing with that debt. Did you know that except for uh, the years 1835 and 1836, the United States has continuously had a fluctuating public debt status since 
it our constitution went into effect on March 4th on 1789. Now, during the American Revolution and the con- the Continental Congress under our Articles of Confederation, the predecessor to our con- our constitution, the the articles assumed huge war debts but lacked the power to repay these debt obligations through taxation and duties upon imports. Now just think about it for a second. We fought the British. Other countries came to our assistance underwriting some of the equipment that we needed. Some of them put up soldiers that we had to pay for. But because we were a confederation, as opposed to a United States of America, there was no way for us to pay back our debts to those countries and individuals who assisted us in our birth. Again, we were born in debt. On the founding of the United States, the financial affairs of the new federation were in disarray, and it was exacerbated by an economic crisis uh, in our urban centers. So in 1790, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton pushed for Congress to pass a financial plan, and it was designated as the first report on public credit, a conversational part of which involved the federal government assuming the state's debts incurred during the Revolutionary War. Now, northern states had accumulated huge amounts of debt during the war. So, for example, the state of, of New York might have borrowed money from Canada. I'm just using that as an example. All these urban centers um, borrowed money from whence they came because, again, there were 13 original colonies that were equal to each other. And when we came together, how do we how do we pay back our debt? So northern states had accumulated a huge amount of debt during a war, amounting to a huge amount back in those days, which we would laugh at today, of 21 and a half million with an M, and wanted the federal government to assume the debt burden. The southern states, which had lower or no debts, can remember they made their economy off the backs of enslaved people uh, who didn't cost them anything other than a piece of bread for the most part. Now, the citizens of the South would effectively have to pay a portion of the debt if the federal government assumed it. They were disinclined to want to go along with this. So some states, including Virginia, had already paid off more than you know, half of its debt and felt that their taxpayers should not be assessed again to bail out what they considered to be the less provident uh, amongst the states and further argued that the plan was beyond the constitutional power of the new government. So James Madison, then a representative from Virginia, led a group of legislators from the South in blocking the provisions and prevented the plan from gaining approval. Then Jefferson, supported by Madison, put forth a plan and via a compromise, and it was known as the Compromise of 1790 and the Funding Act of 1790. The compromise meant that the state's debts were all picked up by the federal treasury and a permanent national capital would be 
located in the South along the Virginia-Maryland border in what became the District of Columbia. So there begins the bartering that goes on amongst the states. Now, when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about the debt ceiling. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion on the debt ceiling and the implications if we breach it. Now, before the break, we started examining the fact that our country was actually born in debt and part of the rationale for forming a more perfect union under our Constitution. And so this, you know, this false... uh, um, words going on in our uh, political discourse is basically full of it. We've always been in debt and we came up with a mechanism to allow us to pay that debt. And most of the individuals and entities that are owed this money are you and me because we invest in our government by buying savings bonds or investing in treasury bills and countries outside and people outside of the United States do likewise. And so if we don't pay our debts, we don't up the debt ceiling, we're hurting ourselves individually as people who have invested in our country, uh, both internally and externally. So a little bit more about some history, because in in case you haven't guessed it, uh, I've always been interested in history, all kinds of history, world history, the United States history, history of the different cultures in our country. So we I don't know if people are taught this in school anymore because our school systems seem to be saying what can't be taught as opposed to what can be. But one place I would send you to talking about our debts and how we're going to handle it are the Federalist Papers. Now, the Federalist Papers are the primary documents in American history, and they are maintained at the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress, you can find it at LOC for libraryofcongress.gov. But to find the Federalist Papers, you go to guides, plural, dot L-O-C dot gov forward slash Federalist dash papers forward slash full text. Now, the Federalist is commonly referred as the Federalist Papers is a series of 85 essays written by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, James and James Madison between October of eighteen of, of seventeen eighty seven and May of seventeen eighty eight, the essays were published anonymously under the pen name Publius in various New York State newspapers at the time. Now, the Federalist Papers were written and published to urge New Yorkers to ratify the proposed United States Constitution, which was drafted in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. In lobbying for the adoption of the Constitution over the existing Articles of Confederation, the essays explain particular provisions of the Constitution in detail. For this reason, 
And because Hamilton and Madison were each members of the Constitutional Convention, the Federalist Papers are often used today to help interpret the intentions of those who drafted the Constitution. So the Federalist Papers were published primarily in two New York newspapers, the New York Packet and the Independent Journal. And they were reprinted and distributed all around uh, the country. Again, they were a lobbying uh, mechanism to get people off the dime to vote to pass the Constitution. Now, Federalist Paper Number 30, it's entitled Concerning the General Power of Taxation. And it's authored by Alexander Hamilton. And it was published in the Packet, the New York Packet newspaper on Friday, December the 28th, 1787. And uh, Mr. Hamilton, and I'll, I'll share with you part of it, he addresses it to the people of the state of New York. It has already been observed that the federal government ought to possess the power for, of providing for the support of national forces, in which proposition was intended to be included the expense of raising troops, of building and equipping fleets, and of all other expenses in any wise connection with military arrangements and operations. But these are not the only objects to which the jurisdiction of the Union in respect to revenue must necessarily be empowered to extend. It must embrace a provision for the support of the national civil list for the payment of the national debts contracted or that may be contracted, and in general, for all those matters which will call for disbursement of the national treasury. The conclusion is that there must be interwoven in the frame of the government a general power of taxation in one shape or another. He goes on to say, money is, with propriety, considered as a vital principle of the public politic, as that which sustains its life and emotion and enables it to perform its most essential functions. A complete power, therefore, to procure a regular and adequate supply of it, referring to money, as far as the resources of the community will permit, may be regarded as an indispensable ingredient in every constitution. From a deficiency in this particular, one of two evils must ensue. Either people must be subjugated to continued plunder as a substitute for a more eligible mode of supplying public wants, or the government must sink into a fatal atrophy, and in short, a short course of time, perish. So this part shows you just how important figuring out a way to publicly finance those things that were towards a civil good, including the military, which automatically comes to mind, because again, we were born in debt because we had other people help us finance our war against the British. 
So he's saying we either come up with a way to do it or we act like monarchs and just tax people, take their stuff, take their kids, put them in the army, or we sink into atrophy. So two, how do we produce revenues and spend it once raised? Well, it's stated in Article 1 of our Constitution, the same place as I said, the bankruptcy clause that I talk about almost constantly here on this show. Part A, Article 1, Section 8, powers to tax and spend. In our Constitution, verbatim, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and exercise, and to pay debts, and to provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States. And it goes on to say, one of the powers is to borrow money on the credit of the United States. And then part B of this is, is kind of like in reverse order. order. Article 1, Section 7 lays out the process by which Congress will act relating to taxing and spending. And verbatim, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. It goes on to say every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall, before it becomes law, be presented to the President of the United States. If he approves it, he shall sign it. But if not, he shall return it with his objections to the House in which it shall have originated, meaning the House of Representatives, who shall enter the objections in a large journal and proceed to reconsider it. If after reconsideration, two-thirds of that House shall agree to pass the bill, it shall be sent together with the objections to the other House, meaning the Senate, by which it shall likewise be reconsidered, and if approved by two-thirds, it shall become law. But in all such cases, the votes of both Houses shall be determined by yeas and nays, and the names of the persons voting for and against the bill shall be entered onto that journal in each House respectively. If any bill shall not be returned by the president within 10 days, Sundays accepted, after it shall be presented to him, the same shall become law in like manner as if he signed it, unless the Congress by an adjournment may prevent its return, in which case it shall not be law. So under the normal process, um, bills for revenues, generation and spending bills, they have several steps. And they involve going from the Treasury Department, that's the, uh, the subject matter expert, to the House. And then it's assigned to the Ways and Means Committee for study. If it's released from the Ways and Means Committee, it's voted on on the floor. And if 218 out of 435 approve it, it goes on to the Senate, where it's sent to the Senate Finance Committee for its perusal. And if released from the Finance Committee, it's put on the floor and 51 people vote for it. It passes. It becomes a law and it goes to the president's desk for his signature or for him to ignore. So, um We're going to leave it there for now, but when we come back, we're going to conclude this discussion and really focus on what we as citizens can do to stop our elected officials from putting us in harm's way concerning our money, including reaching out to our representatives. And um, so we'll talk about that next time. So when we get together next time, we'll continue this very important topic. But 
We're going to leave it here for now. But as always in closing here at Selma's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including laws used by our government to keep us in good economic stead for the greater good of us as a society, but the whole economy of the world as well. But in the meantime, and as much as it appears that some are all of the variants of COVID-19 and other viruses, known and unknown, will be with us for the foreseeable future, I once again ask you to please get vaccinated and boosted. And don't forget your flu shots, too. And even if you have all your shots, but especially if you don't, please take the necessary precautions when you're out and about to at least wear a mask. Okay, please. So till next time, please take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.